Well, I do not watch a great deal of television these days, uh, not because I'm against it, but I just don't get to it. But uh, over the years, I've had my share of TV addictions. And uh, one series, this kind of gives you an idea of how, how far out of the loop I am, but one that series that I watched fairly religiously in the 90s was ER, which, as the name suggests, was all about a team of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals working in what I assume was a level one trauma center at a major hospital. And while there were many fine episodes uh, in that series, uh, one in particular which I've mentioned here before, uh, it involved one of the more peripheral characters, a nurse named Jeannie. And in this particular episode, Jeannie has just discovered through no fault of her own that she is HIV positive and is understandably struggling to come to grips with what that all means. And uh, that struggle that she has is the, is the theme of that particular episode. And one of the things about ER that always made it so compelling to me was the way that they kind of wove together the lives of the doctors and nurses with the patients that they took care of them, uh, and ter- that they took care of. And especially intriguing to me was the way that on a number of occasions the roles would be reversed so that the patient would actually serve as the doctor, so to speak, who, through whom some sort of healing or resolution would come. And that reversal of roles was always intriguing to me. At any rate, that's what happens to Jeannie in this particular episode. In the course of taking care of an elderly man, uh, they begin to talk, and Jeannie shares with him the sad news of her HIV-positive diagnosis, and she talks to him about... And as she talks to him about it, she becomes increasingly sad and frustrated and distraught. And at one point shouts out in frustration, why is this happening to me? And the elderly man pauses and as she begins to settle, he asks her, "Um, has it occurred to you that this just isn't just happening to you? That maybe this is also happening for you? It is a stunning question. It's a question that takes her breath away, that completely blindsides her. It's also a question that actually begins to work on her. And from that point in the story, Jeannie turns some kind of corner and things are different for her. To be sure, she's still HIV positive. Her future is anything but certain. But there's a definite change of perspective within her that drastically affects the way that she responds to to what is happening to her. Unintentionally or intentionally, possibly, the writers of that particular episode were illustrating the comment made by one scholar who, when he was considering the passage that we're looking at this morning, wrote this, The suffering that tears away at the soul is the suffering that has no purpose. People can endure intense distress if they know it is not meaningless. That reality is one of the central themes to be found in the verses before us this morning. Before we look any further at that, please pray with me. In one sense, Father, it's silly to say that this is your time, and all time is your time. But this in particular is your time, 
because we've gathered to turn our attention to you, to focus on you, among other things, to hear from you in your word. So as we look at your word now together, would you please speak to us in ways that only you can, and which means that you're the teacher and you apply these things to our hearts in particular ways. Ways will not be exactly the same for any two people in this room. Uh, only you can do that kind of teaching and uh, melding of truth with our hearts and minds. And so we ask that you would do that. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're only looking at verses 5 to 11, but let me give you the context by starting in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, as we've not really been looking at Hebrews in some time, let me give you just a little bit of context so you can hear these words rightly because it's very possible not to hear them rightly. The author of this letter has written with one main goal in mind. It's this. It is to stop his harassed and persecuted readers from drifting away from or abandoning altogether their Christian faith. That's the goal of this book. Sadly, and as a result of the intensity of the persecution they're facing, some believers had already turned away from their Christian profession and returned to Judaism, or perhaps some modified version of it. And so in order to address that, the approach taken by the writer of Hebrews has been to show how Christ was the fulfillment of and superior to everything that the Old Testament had foreshadowed. As a result, because Christ was the fulfillment of everything that was anticipatory and partial in the Old Testament, since he was the one the entire Old Testament was looking forward to, it made no sense whatsoever to go back to Judaism. But more than that, walking away from Christianity was not just futile, it was perilous. 
because it meant rejecting God's Son and so incurring His wrath. And that's basically been the, the overall argument made by the writer of Hebrews for the first ten and a half chapters of the letter. Following that, the writer shifts gears and begins to work out some of the practical implications of the theology he's been espousing. Up to this point, those practical applications have included things like this. Uh, a strong encouragement that instead of wandering away from God, to confidently draw near to God and to do so specifically by drawing near to the people of God. Draw near to God by drawing near to the people of God. Encouraging one another, praying for one another, spurring one another on to loving good works. Uh, because too often the tendency is, in the midst of hardship and struggle, is to pull away. Particularly to pull away from the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. When it is hard, don't do that. Don't pull away. Dive in and experience the presence of God dwelling in the midst of the people of God. Following that, there's a reminder to avoid engaging in deliberate sin. And especially the deliberate sin of turning away from one's profession of faith in Christ. Then there's a reminder about how they had been faithful in the past. They had endured great hardship including the seizure of their property and possessions and how they were able to endure that precisely because they believed that the future promised by God was greater than any present comfort they might attain by turning away from Christ in the midst of their despair. And then there's this kind of history lesson in chapter 11 which serves to demonstrate that what God has, was asking them to do, which is namely to, to have faith, it was not dependent upon sight and which was even contrary to one's own present experience. But that, that admittedly difficult ask was no more difficult or different than what, that which God had always asked of their spiritual ancestors. People like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Samson, David, Hannah, Samuel, etc. All these ones who had come and gone, who died in faith without seeing the fullness of the promises, and yet every last one of them fully believing that they would yet see the fullness of those promises. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, there is the practical challenge to take courage from all these ones who have finished the race already and who are now waiting for the rest of God's people to cross the line, to avoid the weight and sin that hinder us in the race. And to stay focused on Jesus as the only way we'll have any hope of finishing. That's what he's led up to so far. That leads us to the passage before us today. Where the writer of Hebrews wants to take aim at a particular perspective that appears to have been troubling some of them. From what he writes in verses 5 to 11, would it seem that some of them, that is believers who hadn't wandered off but maybe were thinking about wandering off. But some of them had been looking at their circumstances and wondering if the hardships they were going through were a sign that somehow God had abandoned them or maybe that he was somehow displeased with them and their present difficulties were a consequence or even proof of that. Verses 5 to 11 seem to be a response to those kinds of questions and that kind of thinking. Look in particular verses 5 to 8 again. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you. He is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, in order to not go off the rails here, it is important to understand the writer's use of the word discipline. In our own time, whenever we hear the word discipline, it immediately brings out all sorts of negative ideas and connotations. It's not a very popular word in this day and age. But when the writer of Hebrews talks about the Lord disciplining those he loves, it's anything but negative. The word used here is the same one that is found, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And the author of 2 Timothy, who's Paul, talks about the scriptures being useful for training in righteousness. The word translated there is, in the Greek, the same one that's used here and translated in Hebrews as discipline. And its use there in 2 Timothy shows us that the word covers a wider range of meaning than it typically does in our own contemporary usage of the term. Discipline, in the Bible's view, is a more global term that includes things like reproof and rebuke, absolutely, but also includes the idea of instruction and encouragement and training. Things that come not as a consequence of some sin, but simply as the result of God's determination to shape us into the image of God and his willingness and his ability to employ all kinds of things to get us there. Sorry about this. I failed microphone 101. So. But God's willingness to use all kinds of things to get us into the image of conformity the image of his son, including and especially hard things. And so the discipline spoken of here ought not be seen as that which is vindictive, but as that which is loving and compassionate. It's not something that is accidental, but that which is intentional. It's not something that has a retributive intent, but actually a reformational intent. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying in response to these people who are wondering what their hardship and God's allowance of that hardship might mean. But in response to that, the writer of Hebrews is saying that whatever you conclude about what it means, don't conclude this. Do not take this as a sign that God has left his post, that God has abandoned you, that God has forgotten you, that he does not love you, that he does not care about you. On the contrary, the writer here wants his readers to see God's allowing them to go on enduring the hardships they're facing. He wants them to see that in the same light that they would see a loving father's leadership and discipline in the rearing of his own children. He wants them to see their father's actions as something that is purposeful even in those moments where it is painful. He wants them to see it as something that is motivated by love and compassion and vision He wants them to see it as an intentional thing and even, uh, dare I say it, as a useful thing. As Piper puts it, it's just like what happened with Joseph and his brothers. He says this, what hostile sinners mean for harm, God means for good. What they will as hurtful, God wills as helpful. What they plan as destruction, God plans as salvation. What they design as a deterrent to faith, God designs as discipline for faith. So at the end of the day, the writer of Hebrews wants his readers to see that what is happening to them, what is happening to them as something that, while difficult, it was at the same time normal, at least it was normal in this sense, that it is 
And as Hebrews 11 shows, it always has been the way of God with those who are his. The presence of difficulty, suffering, and hardship are things that mark us off as his. There are things that are so much a part of God's way with us, things that are so necessary that if they were absent from our life, if we were to go through this life without ever having known a significant hardship, then we would have very good reason to wonder whether God had abandoned us. Let me say that again. The only thing more distressing than sitting under the discipline of the Lord in all of its forms would be to live completely free of the Lord's discipline. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And the writer of Hebrews knows, even as he says these things, he knows these things are hard to see and they're hard to grasp. So he uses the analogy of earthly fathers with all their imperfections to drive this home. And in doing this, his point's fairly simple. We know what it's like or have seen examples of earthly fathers who disciplined their children and did the best they could despite their imperfections. Why not then respect God who disciplines us for our good, for what actually is best, not just for what seems best? Uh, I don't know what it was like for you growing up, but in my childhood home, uh, discipline in all of its forms was a big thing. Uh, there were certainly, um, in its more negative aspects, it was there uh, because, frankly, I gave my parents lots of opportunities to correct me. Um, like the time it did explode a small mountain of gunpowder inside our garage, or the time I stupidly thought that it would be interesting to see what happens when you throw a can of off into a roaring fire. This is never a good idea. And uh, children, please don't do that. But at any rate, I gave my, that kind of stuff was happening all the time. I gave my parents plenty of opportunities to exercise the more negative, corrective aspects of discipline, and they did. But it was, I was also fortunate to have parents who were not just about catching me doing wrong. They were also very intentional about guiding and shaping us. They were taking us somewhere as children. They were trying to get to a place They were committed to instructing us, making sure that we had different experiences, whether we wanted them all or not, simply because they knew we needed them. They allowed us to experience good things, to be sure, but they also allowed some hard things, some sad things, some frustrating things, that things they actually could have delivered us from, but chose not to. They didn't give us what we wanted all the time, and all those things they did and allowed uh, all those things, all that stuff, Uh, was part of their discipline of us. One thing in particular my father would say to me before I received some negative reinforcement was, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Maybe you've had parents say those kind of things. Words which at the time, you know, I thought were utterly ridiculous. But, uh, you know, I couldn't understand how that was even possible. But those words actually now make perfect sense to me. Um... I understand my father now in a way that I did not back then. And I have felt the pain that he talked about. I look back on my father's and mother's discipline in all of its forms, in all of its fullness. And because of it, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it had a purpose. More than that, however, I know that my parents loved me. Because being truly loving was more important to them than always being liked by me. 
or always being understood by me. They did what love required and not just what their ego wanted. And that, says the writer of Hebrews, is how God is toward us only in an infinitely better way. God is willing to risk being misunderstood by us and even disliked by us at least for a season in order that he might do for us what a loving father ought to do. He loves us far too much to ignore the consequences of our own brokenness or to shelter us from the trials and the hardships which uh, on the one hand are certainly a consequence of the fallenness of the world and yet which in his hands become the very means by which he providentially works out his perfect will which includes sculpting us into the image of his son. And certainly this analogy between heavenly fathers and earthly fathers breaks down in different ways. Some people have never had a father or a mother they can even remember. Some people had fathers, some mothers, some both, but that were not good. They were terrible. Still others had parents, like mine, I was fortunate, who were good, not perfect, not flawless, or anything close to it. But even those of us who have never had good fathers or parents usually know of them and can still recognize them and can see the analogy that the writer of Hebrews is making. And that analogy between earthly fathers and parents was one that the readers of this letter needed to remember, especially now, especially for them when things were hard And they were hurting and getting weary and wanting to give up and walk away. They needed to think about and remember, for those that could, what it was like to be on the receiving end of a good father's leadership and training. That is, his discipline. They needed to remember how unpleasant some things were at the time they were happening. And yet, how years later those same things, while still difficult, were nevertheless seen and felt differently. Just as surely as that same sort of thing took place with their own earthly fathers or parents, they could anticipate the same kind of thing taking place with regard to their heavenly father's way with them. They needed to see and know that somewhere in the future, somewhere in the future, they would look back on all that was currently going on with a new perspective and with new eyes. And from that vantage point, and really that vantage point alone, they would clearly see that which cannot be seen close up, but only from a very great distance. Some things don't come into focus until you are a long, long way away from them. And they would see the consistent loving hand of their Heavenly Father, even and especially through the hard times. And this, I believe, is at least part of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but... Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One of the results, one of the fruits or byproducts of the Lord's providential discipline of his people, whatever form it might be, is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I think the interesting word there is that word, peaceful. The writer might have just said that discipline leads to the fruit of righteousness, left it at that. But the writer of Hebrews knows his readers need to see more and just the connection between what they were experiencing now and some future appreciation of their righteousness. They needed to be reminded that all of these providential hardships that at the moment were creating absolute havoc and chaos in their life would ultimately bring them 
to what they were longing to see and know, and that is the peace of God in all its forms. Peace that comes from being right with your Creator and from knowing you are right with your Creator. Peace of knowing that you belong to your Creator from knowing that He regards you of all people as His treasured possession. The peace that comes from knowing that you are in step with your Creator, that your life is aligned with His person and His purposes. The peace that comes from patiently learning to look past present circumstances to a greater good, from learning that believing really is seeing. The peace that can be known amidst havoc and chaos and great uncertainty. The peace that comes from the kinship we experience, from understanding our suffering Savior, simply because we, like our Savior, have suffered too. The peace that comes from knowing that all that is happening to you is also always happening for you. I had a conversation with a friend who was going through some very difficult times and and things that were really setting him back, causing him to ask some really hard questions, to seriously question his faith, seriously consider throwing in the towel. And he asked me what it all meant, and I told him, "I, I don't know what it all means. And I don't know where it's all going, but I can tell you this. Hebrews 12 assures me that the fact that you are experiencing The heavy providence of God means at least this. You are deeply and passionately loved by your heavenly father who regards you as his very own. And that this, even this, is part of the path that leads to his perfect peace. I do not know, would not dare to guess what this new year holds. Good things, I hope, I'm sure. Hard things, I'm just as sure. But I do know that the Savior who leads us into it is a Savior who suffered unjustly on our behalf for our own salvation and deliverance. And we can completely entrust ourselves to a Savior like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the fact that you do love us um, as a good father, as a good parent. Um, Help us to have perspective and patience um, as we wait to see how some of the current chaos in our lives becomes part of um, this beautiful portrait of redemption and reconciliation and renewal that you are painting um, and uh, Father help us to believe you all along the way help us to encourage one another to, to, to seek your presence in the midst of your people uh, and to not only uh, receive encouragement to be but to be encouragers ourselves um, help us to persevere to not grow weary to fix our eyes on Jesus we pray this in his name and for his sake amen
We'll now take up uh, an offering for those that want to support the work of this church or a number of ministries that we support together as a congregation.